The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. The position that we came into through belief of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit placing us into that position. And we're so thankful that we're not there by ourselves, we're there with others that we're vitally united to, positionally. And uh, being united, we can interact with one another uh, so that we function more in the way that you desire us to. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that we come to it with a seriousness, a recognition that it has authority because it's from you, and that it has everything we need to know so that we can be ready for those works that you have prepared for each one of us. And so, Father, we thank, thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love and mercy to us. And we ask that as we look into your word today, we'd understand that love and mercy even more. Amen. All right. We continue in the book of James, if we could turn there together. We've, uh, last week we were looking at positional truth in the book of James. Um, we've been in the book of James a couple weeks now. Um, we started this by acknowledging that James was a very early uh, letter. It was probably written right after Acts 15, as they sent a letter to the Gentile churches. That's It's not actually a... It's actually in the text of Acts. They sent out a small letter to the Gentile Christian churches that's in the text of the book of Acts 15. But then it appears that James wrote a letter to the Jews out amongst those groups. Uh, so a little different message. Um, but there's a lot of truth in this book of James, letter of James, uh, to Christians because there's Christian truth here. Um, it's not a letter that was only to Jews. It was written to Christian Jews. Okay, Christian being the most important aspect of it. But it's very transitional. They had not completely changed over to grace teaching yet. But it has a lot. We don't know all the ins and outs there because we aren't at the first century church. We just see glimpses of what was written. And so that implies they knew certain things. So we've been looking at things that imply positional truth through the first chapter. And we saw that the fruit of the Spirit is a big thing. We see joy. We see faith. We see love. We see meekness. But we also see asking. Okay, these are all things that are contingent on being in Christ, abiding in Christ, and then Christ abiding in us so that we can then act on these the, the asking, the privilege of communication, and then also the fruit of the Spirit. You can't have the fruit of the Spirit unless you are walking by the Spirit, unless you are framing your mind by the Spirit. So these are all indirect proofs of positional truth as early as James writes this. Okay? So I want to continue on in the book of James, continuing to read. So last week we finished up with uh, verse 15. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. 
that can be um, in the sense of physical death through chastening or it could be the death that comes from uh, well, I'd take that, the, that final death to be the physical death do not err my beloved brethren I think because of the bring us forth it's looking at the, the final stage of it having been fully formed brings forth death because um, as we saw last week when you trespass which is prior to sin there's a quality of death um, that would be the more uh, in a it's not a spiritual death in the sense you're separated from God and going to hell um, that's called the second death um, but it's the uh, quality of death that comes when you're not living in Christ yeah so that would make all your works be dead right yeah worthless yeah separated um, do not err, my beloved brethren, verse 16. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not a quality of the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like an, unto a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whosoever stoops down to look into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be happy in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. All right. Now you might sit here and say, Josh, where do you see positional truth in that passage? Let me show you. All right. Let's look. There's some, there's, I would say a, a direct, a, in a, a, a uh, direct statement we see through here and several implied statements All right starting in verse 17 the good gift what is the good gift now this passage is usually uh, something you might see in a some kind of religious uh, gift card maybe a, a birthday card a Christmas gift card Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, and I'm giving you a present. So I'm like the messenger of God. Because <laughs> I'm, do you like this gift? Is it a good gift? I'm from God. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm just being a little facetious, but um, that's how a lot of people look at, at this verse. A good gift is from God. Any general good gift is from God. Now, What's the number one rule of the interpreter? 
Does anybody know the number one rule of interpretation? It starts with a little word called C. Context. And what's the second rule? Context. And what's the third rule? Context. All right. So what is this good gift? Context. Let's yeah. look. Let's look at the context. Well, let's jump back to verse uh, verse 5. Let's look back at verse 5. My brethren, or let's go to verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into multifaceted temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let it, patience have its complete work, that ye may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. I haven't heard anything about a gift yet. Have you? Okay, look in verse 5. If any, men, if any of you lack wisdom, so what would the wisdom relate to here? You don't know how to get out of this trial. You don't know how to get through this trial. You don't know how to what to do. Okay. Let him ask of God that gives. You know what that word give is? Give. He gives it. He gives. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. You have a promise here that God will give. What the, you know what the problem is? Nobody's asking. You see a lot of unwise people around. You see a lot of unwise action. You don't see much asking going on. Okay. What's the gift in this? And then he goes through this whole context and a huge part of it has to do with temptation and enduring temptation. And then he goes straight in to verse 7. Every good gift and every perfect gift is what? It's from above. It's from God. So he just told you what the pathway to sin is, the thought processes that lead to sin is. He just told you. He just told you that if you... Wanna, if you lack wisdom, ask for it and you'll, it'll be given to you. And it's a perfect gift. It's the exact... Why is it perfect? Because it's exactly what you need when you need it. Okay? I've been given a hammer at Christmas time and I just think, why did I get a hammer? I don't need a hammer. Do I look handy? <laughs> Do I look like I'm a person that fixes things? Have you been to my house? Now, when I want a hammer, I want it where I can find it, and I'm happy to have it. But when I get it when I don't need it, I'm not excited about it. I don't look at it and go, this is the perfect gift. I look at it and I go, oh, that's a dad gift. Okay. Or it's a honeydew list. <laughs> <laughs> You're about to get a few When you have more than two, you know you're getting a hint. <laughs> and what is and then you get they'll go down the whole road of socks, underwear, and ties. I mean what does that say? Um Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
Now, just for you to recognize wisdom is a good gift implies you're in the right headspace, doesn't it? Because you asked for it and you received it. And it provided what you needed to endure, to not go down the road of death, to not go down the road of sin, to not go down the road of failure. So wisdom always includes that you have the knowledge, you just aren't applying it correctly. So I just have a question about that. They have not been taught the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Well, so, in regard to who hasn't been? These people. We don't know that. I'd say they'd have to have some of it because it's counted all joy, which is part yeah. of the fruit of the Spirit. So they have to have, know how to access joy to be able yeah. to do that. We don't know what they knew and what they didn't know. But the very statement of some of these things shows there was some rudimentary knowledge, whether that was provided through um, the temporary gifts. Okay. Um, but as far as Paul being the steward of the dispensation, those things were not revealed yet. Not as early as Acts 15. Okay, that would have been very soon. All right. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but um, let's look at this wisdom. Okay. Um, I want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. How does this wisdom relate? I think just right there in the context it relates to positional truth because it's positional truth that's going to help you endure the temptation. I can show you how in Christ truth is critical to a fleshly attack. It's critical to a satanic attack. It's critical to a worldly attack. You can't have victory without positional truth in regard to any one of your spiritual enemies. So going back to 1 Corinthians, I want to turn there first. Now, when it comes down to wisdom, sometimes we can be kind of, as Christians, we can kind of be downers on wisdom. We can be like, oh, wisdom's bad. You don't want to be philosophers. Okay. And what's the right balance in regard to wisdom? And, well, it's the wisdom of the world that's bad, right? And I think that's a pretty simple, it doesn't, we don't have to go very far to, to figure out that's the balance. The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Right, so and we let's just see that. I'm not, let's not just put this as our own opinions. Let's look at Scripture. First Corinthians one, we read in verse seventeen. It says, "For Christ sent First Corinthians one seventeen. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God." For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this age? Okay. So it's the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the age, man's wisdom. Turn to Colossians 1.
and we see Christ, or not Christ, but uh, Paul, as he's uh, talking to the Colossians who he had not met, he tells them about one of the mysteries that he taught, which was for the maturing of believers. He says to them in verse 27, to whom God desired to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Okay. All wisdom. Now remember, what's when we read this all wisdom, do we sit here and go, oh, didn't you just say the preaching of Christ was not using words of man's wisdom? But Paul says all wisdom. I'll tell you right now, all almost never means all. It's always contextually. All right? When he's talking about all wisdom, it's the correct use of knowledge in regard to the Christian life. All correct application of knowledge for the Christian. That we may present each one mature in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. And we read, as he continues to read, if we, let's uh, look in verse uh, 21. It says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, this is communicating that when it comes to salvation, you don't have to prove it to somebody with a sign. That's what the Jews demanded. Show me a sign that validates your message. Okay. The, the Gentiles, they seek after wisdom. Well, this seems like some new philosophy. Ooh, show us how you are such a gymnast with the mind. So is your logical insights, right? And when it comes to salvation, it's a message. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek and you, you want miraculous signs to, to validate the message or you want some fancy philosopher that you respect because they're such intellectuals. To those who are called of God, it just takes the message. It just takes the message and God does the rest. Okay? It's that simple. Just preach the message. Those who are supposed to believe will believe. Because it's not my work, it's not your work, it's God's work. Verse 24, but unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty after the flesh, not many noble after the flesh are called. 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world. The idea of base things are the things that no, no birth. The ones that have no high, they're not high born. They don't have some meaningful birth. You go, oh, who's this kind of person? They came from, look at their parents. They are intellectual giants. This person's going to be really blessed mentally. Or this person came from uh, philosophers extraordinaire. What is their mind going to be like? Okay. Nope. Base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why did God do that? He doesn't always tell us why. He tells us why here. So that no flesh can boast in his presence. Nobody's going to get to heaven and see the Shekinah glory of God and go, Hey God, have you seen me lately? We're going to be, the people that come before him are going to be blown away by his being. Okay? We aren't going with a resume, folks. But out from him are you in Christ Jesus. When I'm standing before God, I'm not even standing on my own merit. You ever see, hear that? People say that. You need to stand up on your own two feet. You need to be a man. You need to blah, blah, blah. Right? When it comes to being in Christ, nobody stands there on their own. We, I am only there because of Christ. Out from God, I'm in Christ Jesus. Out from God, you are in Christ Jesus. If I'm not in Christ, I would not be accepted in the presence of God. But because I'm in Christ, I am accepted. Because Christ is accepted. And this is the wisdom of God expressed to us. This is the correct use of God's knowledge to confound the things that are, to confound the mighty, to confound those of high birth, to confound the wise. This is the wisdom of God. In the wisdom of this world, nobody gets anything for free. Okay? When you get something for free, you don't value it. That's the wisdom of the world. And if you deny that, you deny it to your own chagrin. We see our country working like that right now. They almost have the whole society turned upside down. Because the wisdom of the world says, if you're going to value something, you have to work for it. When it comes to the things of God, he turns, he flips that completely around. And he says, if you worked for it, you don't got it. Because I did the work. And if you're in me, you're righteous, you're holy, and you're redeemed. And this is something I graciously give to you in Christ. This is the wisdom of God. 
Now, you think the, the statement on wisdom ends here, but it doesn't. Read in verse 31, that according as it is written, he that boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, verse 2, came not with excellency of speech or of, or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, if you know the backstory behind this, go back to the book of Acts. Where was Paul right before he went to Corinth? He was in Athens. Now, was there a church? Is there a letter to the church of Athens? No, there's not. Why? Did, well, there must have been. That's because he saved so many people. They had to leave Athens, right? And they came to Corinth, right? That's what happened. No, it's not what happened. I don't have any proof of that in Scripture. But what I do have proof of is that Paul on Mars Hill tried to show with words of wisdom and man's wisdom, tried to convince the philosophers of Mars Hill who were the philosophers, the quintessential philosophers of the day. That was the gathering place for philosophers of the world at that time. And Paul spoke there and he held his own, but it did not result in a evangelistic revival. In fact, it caused him to leave in fear and trembling and come to Corinth in fear and trembling. And he determined to no longer come with words of wisdom. And he came to the Corinthians in fear and trembling because he had tried to use words of wisdom. Okay. Everybody with us here? Are we following along? Are we tracking? Keep going. And I was with you in weakness, verse 3, and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. It's not because Paul couldn't do it. Paul was a very effective communicator. That's why when the, he was in, in the book of Acts, they thought Barnabas was Jupiter. And who was Paul? He was Hermes. They called him Hermes because what was Hermes? He was the one that gave the messengers. He was the messenger of the gods, remember? And he'd be the one speaking. Okay. Paul was a very effective communicator and he could use the words of man's wisdom. He had been taught under the best teachers of Israel and he had, Tarsus had a very uh, high-end education system. The University of Tarsus, the Harvard of Tar of the Med I don't know. Um, <laughs> it was not with enticing words of man wisdom, but it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And when did he do that? Right when he got to Corinth? Nope. It happened when Timothy and Silas came, and he was pressed to speak Christ, Christ crucified. I think he, up to that point, he'd just been talking about his death, talking about the Old Testament and the promise of a Messiah maybe, but he did not preach Christ crucified because he was still in fear and trembling. Then in verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are mature. Those that are supposed to hear will hear. 
yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the princes of this age that come to nothing. But we speak a wisdom of God in a mystery. Right? It's mysterious. We speak a mysterious wisdom. And only those that are initiated can know. When you become a super Christian, then you'll understand what I'm trying to say. Is that what this is communicating? No, that's not what a mystery is. The mysteries of the New Testament are not mysterious. Mysteries in the New Testament are things that were unrevealed in the past, but they're revealed today. They were unrevealed in the past because there was no need for them in the past because Christians didn't exist in the past. Once Christians are here and there's a new way to live, these truths have to do with how we're to live today. Okay? But we speak a wisdom of God, verse 7, in a mystery, even a hidden wisdom, which God marked, God marked out before the ages unto our glory which none of the princes of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of that glory. So our glory that we have today is a direct result of the Lord. And if he had not have been crucified, we would not be in a place to exhibit this glory. He's the Lord of our glory. And it goes in, and you can keep reading through down here, but it shows how this, this uh, revelation uh, concerning wisdom comes about. It comes through about through the Spirit of God working in men who then spoke the mind of God, and then eventually it would be written down. And it's how we relate to these truths in the realm of our spirit, the part of us that's saved, the part of us where we have the mind of Christ, that we can then discern the value of this wisdom. Everybody with me? Okay. Turn over to Colossians 2. Now, Colossians 2, we have a mystery revealed. We just saw it in, well, chapter 1 in verse 27. We saw that mystery. It's the mystery about Christ and you, the hope of glory, the hope that we can live up to who we are in Christ because Christ lives inside of us. This goes right back to our Christian life diagram here that Paul taught, warning every man that they may be perfect in Christ. Go drop down to verse one of chapter two, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you. This is this impresses me. Paul had a great conflict for these believers in Colossae, and he never met them. Have you ever heard of you know, you hear about believers other than other places and and you communicate with them, you find out that they're believers and you have a concern, you pray about them, you you pray yeah, you pray about the the, the problems they're having. You, and you hear about somebody coming and trying to lead them astray. But you can't go to them. You know, you have believers you're dealing with where you're at. You have, God has a purpose for you where you're at. And you can't go running off and help. You, do you think you're the solution for everybody? You think your God needs you to go help with that person and that person and that person? And that? 
For everything you do, you have to not do something, right? It gets to a point where, yeah, that's a good thing and that's a good thing and that, but which thing does God want me to do? Right? That's why you have to discern God's will. You have to, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, but what is the thing you want me to do? I have five things that I could do and all of them could be the good, but which is the thing that you want me to do right now? Right? Well, Paul didn't go to Colossae. He wrote this letter. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, even the Father and of the Christ. Now get this, guys. Don't stop reading. We read all that for this thing here. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. Can I stop telling you how important in Christ's truth is? Can I just stop? This tells you here. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. You have to go to in Christ to find it. They're hid there. You want to know how to apply truth in the Christian life? You have to go to your position in Christ. And I think if you go back to James, the fact that they lacked wisdom, I think it might be a part of it was the fact that while they had some truth, it was limited. It was the very beginning of the church. And maybe when they asked for wisdom, maybe there was a spiritual gift that spoke up in that instance. But how many, when a spiritual gift acted back and then how many people were involved? Was it the whole church? Probably not. It might have been in one little setting. Somebody going through something and believers interacting amongst one another. So it wouldn't be always widespread. We have a Bible that's been, you know, how many people had the Bible in the early church? Probably no individual believer had it. Only the, the pastors of the church that held the the scrolls that the church had accumulated had them. And you'd gather for the reading of the scriptures. Right? So on all different levels, the, the, the spread of the revelation of the knowledge was limited. And these temporary spiritual gifts would have been more crucial. So you have a believer falling into temptation. They're accounted joy. But... How do I identify what spiritual, what spiritual enemy is it? And how do I identify which way of escape to take? And do I even know that there's three different enemies? And even do I even know that there's three different ways of escape? Is all of that explained out yet? I don't know. Did they lack wisdom? Yes. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask, and it will be supplied to you. So whatever amount of knowledge was given... They could ask and it wasn't, it would be given because God is open-handed and he's not upbraiding and he's not stingy and he wants to us to not live in the realm of death. He wants us to love the Lord. He wants us to endure. The, he wants us to learn patience. He wants, see this? 
He wants us to be happy. So when you come back to James, every, verse 17, every good giving and every complete gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, alongside of whom there is no variableness, no variation, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will, of his own determination. He birthed, he brought us forth by a word of truth that we should be a kind, a certain kind of first fruit of his cre creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not a righteousness of God. Now, I would put forth to you here, especially because we're going to the next verse. Let's read one more verse. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, isn't that fun to say? Um, all that is, that's the King James Version. Literally, all it is is abundance of def defiled, it's a moral defilement, filthiness kind of thing. Um, abundance of filthiness and evil, okay? Um, you're to put this away and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the context, this, is, this statement is separated from the context, and 10 being no, it's completely connected to the context. What do you think? Do you think this, this whole thing of wrath and meekness is related to the context, or do you think he just, you know, James had a, a you know, is he chasing a squirrel here? Was it like, uh, I'm writing about enduring temptation and uh, the Christian life issues and a squirrel? <laughs> you know, is that what's going on here? Or is this directly related to the context and something that you could fall into temptation? Yeah, it's, it's part of this whole context of, hey, you can fall into temptation and you can have a bad lust and you can deal with it incorrectly, and you can go down a bad road that leads to death. Or you can take door number two. <laughs> right? And there's a proper way to deal with a bad thought. Yeah, I think that's what this passage is saying. Okay. Now, um, 
Let's look at some passages on um, wrath. First of all, wrath is part of the, uh, if we go back, uh, this is Orage, but let's go back to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Orge, I don't believe, is actually stated in the works of the flesh, but I would see it as such like, as a, an extension of uh, wrath. Of, uh, that would be the Greek word thumos. Thumos being the inward burning, uh, wrath being the outward result. <clears throat> so, if you look here in uh, Galatians 5 and read in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, thumos, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. Now that's the works of the flesh. Now what is the flesh? What is the sin nature essentially? It's the nature of man, right? Adam was created with a human nature. When he fell, it became a sin nature, right? So what is a human nature, okay? It is a body, soul, spirit. Okay? Now, this isn't a perfect diagram, but... Okay? It's just an illustration, all right? We're made up of body, soul, and spirit. Now, we're saved in the realm of our spirit. We're connected to God. And we're joined to God and we're saved in the realm of our spirit. We're not, not saved in the realm of the body and the soul. We will be saved at the rapture completely. Body, soul, and spirit. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. Okay. The Christian life is really learning how to, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, keep your soul, which is a big place where the sin nature reigns, 1 Peter 2.11, right? Fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The Christian life is really about learning how to interact with your relate, this right here in Christ. Okay, this is the connection. It's in our spirit. It's learning how to utilize that relationship so that our spirit takes the lead in governing our actions instead of the soul. Because <clears throat> the soul is where we're not saved yet. And if we let it take the lead, we're going to go down a dangerous path. So when it comes to the sin nature, you have these works of the flesh. Now you got adultery, okay, fornication, 
uncleanness, uh, lewdness. Okay, those four are sexual. Okay, that's uh, inappropriate relations with somebody that you're not married to. Fornication can be, in scripture you have incest, you have bestiality, you have homosexuality, all these different things. Uncleanness is a dirty mind, thinking about sexual things that, that it, outside of a relationship of marriage. Lewdness is being public about sexuality when it should be private between a man and woman in marriage. Now, is, is there a proper place for sexuality in, yeah, obviously. Have you read the Song of Solomon? Have you read uh, the passage in the New Testament that say uh, a man belongs to the woman and the woman belongs to the man? It doesn't forbid any sexual activity, you notice. Um, so what does the sin nature do? The, the, what makes it wrong is the sin nature bends a normal human desire. Okay? Takes it to an extreme or to a excess. Right? And that's what makes it wrong. It takes it to an extreme or an excess. It's bent. So then you have idolatry. You got witchcraft. You got, um, here I'm going to put uh, zeal, and I'm going to put, uh, I already have idolatry up there, mm, heresy, heresy, yeah, there it is, okay, those I'd put under the realm of the, the religious, okay, then you could go down, and then there's this, the, the, uh, kind of, I don't know what I would classify, emotional, you got these uh, uh, strife and selfish ambition. Um, they, see, that these are all normal human desires. But the sin nature takes them and warps them to something bad. All right? Now, so let's keep reading. Turn to Ephesians 4. So I would say this is true of all these different works of the flesh. There, not that the, there's, adultery is never good. Okay? But when you look at sexuality, there's a sexuality that's proper and in, in keeping with God's word and that is glorifying to God. If you look, and you could go down through all, is there, when it comes to witchcraft, what is witchcraft? It's that, it's not that you go to a witch. The witchcraft in their, in their world was, uh, it was it's kind of like if you went to a magician show today, and they do something, and they do, it's through sleight of hand or something, and, but you don't know how they did it, and you go, wow. Right? That's what the witchcraft was looking at. It's, when, it's like when you go to a big cathedral and it's so beautiful and in the spaces are how they do the architecture and you go, wow, oh, 
I feel the presence of God. Right? My worship here is surely better in, than in my little drab old little farm church. No, it's not. It's not any better. That's just your sin nature. Okay? Or, you know, those different things. But is there a proper awe of God that you should have? Absolutely. I don't sit and say, stop being in awe of God. Because that's of the sin nature. No, it's not of the sin nature. The sin nature is when you put, it, put that attitude towards things that are not God. Okay? So it's very, very important that we look at these things with a true light. I think we deceive ourselves if we think it's even possible. You know, for pe- what happens to, are there people that completely forbid sexuality? In religious circles? Yeah. There are. There's, there's Christian churches that, oh, it's all always bad, only for procreation. And that creates problems. Uh, look at the Roman Catholic Church. What happens with them? Did God ever tell them that, that the, the priests or the, what we would call the bishops of the churches should be celibate? No. And what kind of problems has that caused? All kinds of problems. Okay. When we try to put uh, restrict something, you try to take a lion and say, "Don't be a lion. You're going to have problems. You're just deceiving yourselves. That lion is going to do what lion does. And don't be surprised when you're a magician and you have a lion and it bites your head off." <laughs> I mean, don't even go that far. If it bites my hand, my knee, my whatever, I'm not liking it, okay? I bruise. I try, I'd, I'd be there and I'd be like, I'm not tasty. Look, I'm skinny. Let me eat here. Um, turn with me. I said Ephesians 4, right? We were on the way there. Ephesians 4. Now, as we come to Ephesians 4, we read from verse... Oh, my goodness. Um, He's contrasting the saved versus the unsaved, and he says in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the uselessness of their mind having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness or lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But we have not so learned Christ. But ye have not so learned Christ. Now they had not met Christ in Ephesus. These believers had not met Christ. But how had they learned from Christ? Through the body of Christ. Through believers getting saved. They have a place in the body of Christ. And then they taught the Ephesians. Right? Indirectly, Christ teaches every believer. Through the work of the Spirit. Through other believers. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him. As the truth is in Jesus. 
that ye put off concerning the former conduct the old man, who is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. See, the lusts will deceive you. <clears throat> you want to know some of the ways it deceives? It says, uh, no one knows what you're going. You're unique. You're the only one that ever had to deal with this. Nobody knows what I'm going through. You feel isolated. You're not isolated. You're in the body of Christ. And what you have, what you're going through is common to humanity. It's common to Christians. Okay? They've all been through it. All been through every which sort of temptation you've been through. Whatever type of situation, somebody else has gone through it already. Instead of put off the former conduct concerning the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed by the spirit of your mind. See? The spirit where you're joined, where you're saved. Don't be confused by your soul that starts telling you, oh, poor you, you're the only one. Right? And be renewed by the spirit. And that you put on the new man. After the, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. What's the new man? I'm joined to all their believers in Christ. Wherefore, wherefore putting away the lie, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay, now, all this points to believers. We don't know exactly what the circumstance was going on in Ephesus that Paul is dealing with here, but it evidently deals with a, a lack of cohesiveness between believers. He talks about the unity of the Spirit at the beginning of the chapter. He goes about the body of Christ, and you're vitally connected with one another. Don't live like the, un, like the Gentiles who, who are alienated from the life of God. You have the life of God. You've been taught by Christ through other believers. Put off... Concerning your conduct, the old man, put on the new man. Stop lying. They're acting like they're islands unto themselves. They're acting like they don't need other believers. He says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Okay. Now, it's, what's interesting here is this wrath would be something that is a development from the sin nature, I believe. It's orge. You don't have orge in the list of the works of the flesh, but I believe it is a going a step farther than that, right? But then it says, neither give place to the devil, showing a distinction between the flesh and Satan. Now, well, that's not right. That's two different spiritual enemies. Well, some people think that they're just so divided that you, they can't ever play off one another. If, if you're in a war, in a war and uh, uh, you're, you're besieging a castle and you see that there's a, uh, a vulnerability, do you take advantage of the vulnerability or do you ignore it and say, no, that's not how we attack. 
We attack this way. We must go through the front door. No, you go to the weakest point, don't you? And what this is saying here is that if you give in fully to anger, you're going to have a big chink in your armor. This is a big warning clause. It's not a prohibition on anger. It is a big warning statement. It's also telling you some ways to dispense with your anger so it doesn't get to the point where you're in danger. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to Let him that stole steal no more. I would propose to you that this person that stealing, it might be coming from anger. It starts with anger, then Satan takes advantage and causes you to steal. But anger was the initial issue. And because you didn't deal with it correctly, they fall under a snare of the devil. But rather, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him the needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So I would propose to you that this also, it's a satanic attack that is taking advantage of anger. You're mad about something. Somebody did something. We don't know what it is. We don't know what the circumstance is. But it cause, you're angry, and the way you deal with it is you're going to start tearing other people down. That's what this corrupt communication is. Nope. Speak things that are good for building others up. Don't give in to it. Minister grace unto the hearers. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. These activities grieve the Holy Spirit. The negative activities. Because you're not allowing the Spirit of God to do the positive work in you to glorify Him. You're not utilizing everything He's made possible. Instead, you're allowing the soul to take the lead and you're going down a bad road. At this point, having... Instead of acting on the anger and letting Satan take advantage, now you then let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and be put away from you. This is a, I believe, a linear. You can't have both. You can't be angry and and put it away at the same time. If you try to, if if anger comes, if I anger orge rises up in you in a flash. If you just say, I can't be angry. That's not what it says here. It says be angry. Instead of doing this, do this. Instead of doing this, do this. Instead of doing this, do this. This is the outworking of the spirit in your life to be able to do these things. You don't do it of your own power. You do it as you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, having your mind in the right place. It's acknowledging that this anger is a bad thought that doesn't originate with you. It originates with the sin nature. And you're directing your thinking in a different direction. So this is not something you do at the same time. It is a process. As it dissipates, then you can put it all away. 
Okay. And then you can be kind to one another, tender-hearted, being gracious towards one another, even as God in Christ has been gracious to us. Okay. Turn back to Romans 12. I think this is in keeping with Romans 12. When he talks about having an unhypocritical love. Isn't that in this context here? Verse 9. Yeah, verse 9. Yeah, there it is. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. It keeps going down through here. Verse 16, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Repay no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as it lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath. Again here, do we have a prohibition of wrath? No, we don't. I think it's not asking a lion to be a lamb. There's times when we're going to have wrath, but what do you do with it? How do, you, what are you, how do you act in light of it? That's what matters. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, now it's going to tell you what you do when you're wrathful. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. Because if you do that, then you're not going to be wrathful. No, that's not what it says here. It doesn't say. It says, for in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That doesn't sound very Christian. But it is the proper outworking of this wrath. Okay, you say, God, this is in God's hands. It's not my place. Yeah, they deserve it. They deserve to fall in a ditch. But that's not what I'm going to do. God's been gracious with me and I'm going to be gracious towards this one that deserves my wrath. Okay? So we're relating to the spirit instead of the soul. Be not overcome of evil, but be overcome but overcome evil with good. So some people get upset about this cuz they'll say um how can you have a righteous anger? I think we're telling you here. I think the context tells you what the proper what to do with the right. It's not that the anger is righteous, it's that what you do with it. Did the anger cause you to then fall into a trap of Satan and then you go through and you tear people down and you you steal from people and you or did the anger result in you allowing God to work through you? 
you know, it's always interesting. You, you watch these superhero movies, and the, you know what the evil always does? You harness that, that anger for a purpose, and it causes you to be focused to get something done. And, you're, and that's how the darkness comes upon, right? And you're able to accomplish great things by harnessing the anger. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But here, the anger, it's not that you're harnessing the anger to accomplish something. It's that you harness it and then it dissipates. Because by doing what God says, it redirects your thinking. All right? I also want to show some examples of places where I would say, now this is interpretation, I would say that Paul was angry when he wrote these words. Okay, now you might, and I, I've, I'm going to state right now, I cannot herald this with authority that, hey, Paul was angry when he wrote this, but I don't think Paul wrote without emotion. I think he had emotions. There's the emotions of a spiritual believer. And I think a spiritual believer can be, just like a spiritual believer can be tempted, just like a spiritual believer can worry, a spiritual believer can be angry. Okay? But you better watch it. You better watch it and you better follow scripture. That's why there's warnings. It says, be angry but sin not. It says, be slow to wrath. Because the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. But we also have examples of what to do if you're angry. Don't give place to the devil. Don't pay evil for evil. These are the prescriptions. Because you're going to get angry. Guaranteed. If you don't ever get angry, you don't have much responsibility in life. I get a pile of anger in my pocket every day when I get to work, when I find out what didn't get done. Okay? But I better deal with that right. Okay. Um, let's show us some, what I would say are examples. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. We'll try to do this quick. We're running up on our time here. I don't want to spend another week on this, so... I would say you can read from 2 Corinthians 10.1 all the way to chapter 13.10, and I see anger through here. I think Tim or Paul, after all he's gone through, after all he's gone through, and he's his identity as the steward of the dispensation, his identity as an apostle is being threatened by false apostles. He's acting out of love, and these guys are acting out of selfishness. Yeah, I think he's angry. I would be angry. Um, Second Corinthians, not First Corinthians. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness. And what is meekness? It's controlled power. So that's going to be something that that is a I would say is a uh, determining factor in righteous anger or anger that is 
the anger of God. The wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Okay? When you're spiritual, you allow God, the influence of the Holy Spirit, to temper that and to bring it down and to be directed for the right purpose. And I think that's what you have here. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and tolerance of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. So he's bold. He's meek. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. I think war might be an outworking of wrath and anger. In the world's terms, yeah. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If you let anger run rampant, you're going to have a problem. So he's taking this, and instead of coming there and beating the snot out of these false apostles, he's writing a letter. And he's writing it with boldness and meekness. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedient. Oh, does revenge speak to wrath? Oh, we were just over there, weren't we? Don't pay back uh, evil for evil. Okay, keep going. When your obedience is fulfilled, do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is a Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. For thou I should boast somewhat more of our authority which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction. I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. Now, is this the language of somebody that's not upset? For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. They do not understand. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. What he's saying is, these guys are evangelistic. When they talk, they make themselves up like there's this great, great, great person. But they don't only compare with themselves. Okay. They don't measure up. Now, boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him boast in the Lord. For not he that commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Now, Paul's going to go through chapter 11 and say, I've been verified by the Lord. I've gone through all these things doing the work of the Lord. 
that is my proof. Did I do this for pay? My pay was beatings. My pay was persecution. My pay was imprisonment. That validates my message. That validates my love. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly. Indeed, bear with me. I would say this sarcasm also stems from this anger that is with him, that is being tempered by meekness, tempered by love. For I am jealous over you with a godly zeal, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another of the same kind of Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, a different kind of spirit, which we have not received, or a different gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with me. If you put up with all this, can you bear with me for a minute? And listen to what I'm, can you endure the little word lashing I'm going to give you? Okay. For I suppose I was not a bit behind the very chiefest of apostles, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Some of these statements are things they were saying about him. Paul was not rude in speech. He was a very articulate speaker. And to bring out these accusations, I'd be a little mad too. They say I'm rude in speech? Yeah, that, when he's, we don't see emotion in the written word. But I can see it. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God without charge? I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and, and lacked, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. As the truth of God, Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Where, why? Wherefore? Because I love you not? God knows. So that was an accusation. Paul doesn't love us. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them who desire occasion. Does that sound like a, you know, we're all just good buddies here? It sounds to me like somebody who's being forceful and strong. But it doesn't necessarily mean anger. You can be strong and forceful in something because you're taking a stand without necessarily demonstrating anger towards it. Okay. I'm just saying there's another way to look at this. Okay. Um, but what I do that I will do that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, wherein they boast they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works." I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool, receive me, yet I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast after the flesh, I will boast also. For ye suffer fools gladly 
seeing ye yourselves are wise. For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face, I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. And it continues on. You can read it yourself. So what I would say is sometimes when we, if we try to say we're never to have anger, I think we're denying what scripture says. Scripture actually never says don't be angry. It says be angry, but sin not. And I think we have illustration in scripture of not explosive anger in the sense of unrighteous, but we have examples of it being, it'd be tempered. Just like when you direct sexuality in a proper way, you don't call it fornication. You don't call it adultery. You don't call it uncleanness. You don't call it lewdness. You call it a glorifying, glorifying to God the proper use of sexuality in marriage. Okay? So I don't think you would call these things you wouldn't come out and say, because we, we reserve, oh, you are angry. We use that as a negative word for when somebody is explosively angry. Right? That's how we use it. Right? But there's a proper way to direct explosive anger. Yeah, like Jesus pushing out the money changers. Now, we aren't Christ. He always did the works of his Father. And we ought not to think that we can do what Jesus did. But there is a proper way to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And I think that meekness, just like zeal, has good zeal and bad zeal. What makes it good zeal and bad zeal? Shouldn't you always want to win? Shouldn't you always want to do your best? Well... The fruit of the Spirit tempers our competitive spirit. Instead of doing whatever it takes to win at all costs, now you're just going to do your best. Okay? It tempers it. And I think this ad ad addressing of anger in all these passages accepts what it says instead of trying to argue against the text. Okay? And so that's just how I would say it. It's best to harmonize it as, no, anger is a normal human emotion and we need to watch ourselves because Satan can take advantage if we try to rectify something because in our minds we can justify it. You're going to go down a bad road because the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. We have these scriptures that explain the dissipation of the anger. Let not the sun go down. How does it say? Let not the sun go down. The thing that comes alongside of. Because if you let it fester and you hold it in, you're probably going to end up, even though you might say, I can't be angry. It's probably not going to stop it. Unless you follow scripture to dissipate it correctly. All right? And this, again, relies on, on positional truth. you got to keep your mind in the right place. So that you can have the empowerment of the Spirit to do that. You will not be able to do it humanistically. You don't have the strength. 
You don't have what it takes. So that's where we will finish, because we're past, way past. Let's close with the word of, word of prayer. Can, can I interrupt? I, yeah. I'm just, you, you already know where I stand on this, but yeah. I like in the Romans 12, he says, uh, leave place for anger, but it's not with us. The very next statement says, you leave it to God. God's mm -hmm. the one that can be angry and deal with right. it. You can. Mm -hmm. And I think just because we say that it's a normal human emotion doesn't mean it's good, because we all have all kinds of human emotions that are out of sync with the character of God. Sure. And our human anger is definitely that type of a thing. So I think, yeah, I just, I'm, I still kind of am stuck with the statement there in, uh, in Ephesians that he says, just let it all go. And I know you went through there, but I, I still don't, I still don't think he's really telling us that we're supposed to be angry because why didn't he list then anger among the fruit from the spirit? If, if that, if that's a spiritual character, that should be. I, you still, you you still have to address why does it say be angry? So you, you still have the oppositional statement. So you have to harmonize how does it tell you to be angry and put away all anger at the same time? Well, it can't be at the same time. I think so. That's the point you just made. Mm -hmm. you give me a hypothetical situation. Do you think you can be angry and say not you just go ahead and give it a try and you can find out that your answer is not going to work out God's righteousness because God, it, it can't be done. And when he goes to the Colossians, he doesn't tell the Colossians to be angry to the Colossians, he said, put it all away. He doesn't give them the option of being angry. He just says, don't do it. So what does it mean when it says, slow, be slow to wrath? Do you, do you just be quick to not have wrath? Slow to wrath means you don't get wrath, you don't get wrathful quickly. It doesn't say don't have wrath. Yeah. My, my response to that is when it says, be slow to wrath, wrath is, is the boiling over of that inner burning. And if you're, if you're hot-tempered, quick-tempered, uh, you're not allowing yourself the time to be spirit-filled. When you feel that, that anger building, or the, you feel that temptation, whatever it is, whatever work in the flesh it is, you feel it starting to come up within you. You need to take the appropriate response and go like you've been teaching us. So, go to our position in Christ. Right. So don't go directly to the outlet, to the venting of the anger. Be slow to do that so you give your chance, your mind a chance to think the way you're supposed to, so you can be spirit-filled and deal with it appropriately. So in the end, what I would say is when you're, when you, sometimes you blow up her wrath and I think it's like, uh, it, it hits you so hard. I don't think it's something like, we have things that boil up and you have thumos and it's hot and it's coming up. And if you let that fester, it eventually down the road blows up, right? We all have seen that. But I think what we're dealing with, with uh, in several of these places, it's something that blows up and it's in an instant. You see something and it's bam, right? And it's telling you how to deal with these in those situations. I think with James, you have, you fall into it, right? You fall into it. And now, how do you deal with this? Well, he's telling you with meekness, with meekness. Meekness comes in and controls that. So in the end, it redirects and it's showing you how it, it can be a righteous anger. It redirects and that power goes in a different direction. And so... People that see it go, oh, they're not even probably going to call it anger. Only you know that you took that anger and went a different direction with it. Okay. Same thing with Ephesians 4. It blows up and you feel it, but you take it a different direction. Instead of blowing up and taking it out on somebody, you then redirect and you're able to give an outlet for that anger by you work 
and you work. You stay focused on your things so that you can help somebody else. And it's other-centered instead of, oh, they did me wrong, or I deserve better, or whatever the case might be. So then it redirects. So that's how the anger is, outlet, as, is seen outwardly. Okay? So, but it doesn't deny the existence of anger in our lives. It accepts that it happens. It's not, I'm not saying, oh, we ought to be angry and blow up on people, and then that's okay. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, if we deny that it happens, and we just say, we can never be angry. Well, number one, Scripture never says, don't ever be angry. Okay? It never says that. It never says, don't, be, uh, don't ever drink. But we can extrapolate and say, we should never drink, because drunkenness is sin. Scriptures never say that even. Okay? Drunkenness is unsaving, right? But we can extrapolate a lot of things that might be very logical, but might not be true, right? We ought to be very careful with that, right? But what you're saying is that a work of the flesh is okay then, essentially. No, essentially, what I'm saying... Because wrath is a part of the work of the... It's one of the works of the flesh, so you're saying it's okay to have that work of the flesh. No, I'm saying that it's a, we're told from Scripture that be angry and sin not. God's telling us to be angry, but don't sin. He's saying it's a big warning sign. It's a big warning sign. You better watch it. And that's all I'm saying. Um, but I don't think, I think there's, uh, my point isn't to say it's good or bad. My point is that within the human nature, there is, in every one of these works of the flesh, there is an aspect that it, those normal human desires can be used for good. Every one of them. You can see a human element that is not, if it's the, the, the sin nature takes it and perverts it to, what, to be the, the work of the flesh. But if you take it away from the bent, what is that base element? There's that in anger too, in, in heating up. There's that there too. So on a base level, and some part of anger, there is a normal human part that is not the sin nature. Okay? It's what you do with it. Where is the sin nature trying to take you with that? And that's what we need to watch for. Okay. And again, we have nothing that says, don't ever have anger. In fact, we're, we're told... Be slow to anger, which does not prohibit it. And it says, be angry. So we're arguing against scripture if we say, don't be angry. Okay, that's, I think you're having a hard time uh, ha to harmonize those scriptures. I think you're, you're putting a lot of effort into something that you're having a hard time with that. I think it's easier to explain it from a anthropological the biblical anthropology, the Christian life, and dealing with it from that perspective is going to be a more harmonious interpretation. And hopefully... You'll forgive me if, if I disagree with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to... I'm not going to... We're, we're not, not going to get in a fist fight over it. I won't get in. But I do think that... Um, trying to set a prohibition on anger will create more problems than good. I do think that, but again, you can deal with that on your own terms. So, all right, all right.
close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these believers, and we thank you for your work in our lives. And we just thank you that um, all that put real thought into your word and working on these different words, um, it does, uh, as they say, uh, iron sharpens iron. Uh, if we just uh, speak in general generalities, um, we will never really address um, things that might be ambiguous and we'll never go forward farther. So we ask that all would look at these things carefully and consider them on their own time and as on the Spirit's uh, time schedule. Amen. I agree with that. <laughs>